Ukraine and Russia. Is the U.S. really trying to goad Russia into war? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. As consumers, we pick and choose from the limited choices they give us, top-down. But as citizens, it's supposed to be quite different. Buying a product is entirely distinct from the task of citizenship, which means participating as our founders intended at governing ourselves. When it comes to the matter of Russia and Ukraine, both mainstream Democrats and Republicans are falling all over themselves in a scramble to pour more billions into preparation for war. They are once again eagerly doing the bidding of the military-industrial congressional complex, certainly not offering citizens any choice in the matter. But is that conservatism? Is that democracy? Is rushing headlong into yet another war in a faraway land really in, in the interests of America? One cannot help but be reminded of the run-up to the war in Iraq in 2003. In hindsight, it's clear that the military steamroller was a terrible move. But at the time, no one dared to question the rush to shock and awe. People were shunned. As Peter Beinart run, writes, the Ukraine crisis illustrates a depressing truth. The closer America gets to war, the more likely Americans are to be called traitors for opposing it. In recent days, some of the same pundits who call critics of the Iraq war apologists for Saddam Hussein 20 years ago have begun calling critics of America's policy toward Russia apologists for Vladimir Putin. End of quote. Well, for a change, Democrats and Republicans are united in Washington. No one dares question. Well-establishment party people, anyway. Where is real conservatism in all this? That often abused word meaning a commitment to actually carrying out the intent of America's founders, conserving American values. Perhaps, perhaps it's time for stepping back out of the rush to war. In his new essay, our guest today, Jacob Hornberger, suggests that the, this moment is a time for introspection. He is founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. The Future of Freedom Foundation was founded in 1989 by Mr. Hornberger with the aim of establishing an educational foundation that would advance an uncompromising case for libertarianism in the context of both foreign and domestic policy. Jacob Hornberger, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Well, as you know, Keeping Democracy Alive is a heavy lift, my goodness. Uh, as listeners know, I am a left-leaning Democrat. Our guest is a leading national libertarian. And I suspect the mainstream of both parties would rather he and I just go away. But we're not going <laughs> to. On the issue of American interventionism, I suspect he and I are in complete agreement. 
It's my understanding of conservatism. Mr. Hornberger and I are true conservatives. In your essay, you call for restoring, quote, America's founding foreign policy of non-intervention. George Washington urged avoidance, famously, of foreign entanglements. Uh, The inaugural pledge of Thomas Jefferson was no less clear. He said, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Uh, In my understanding of conservatism, we are in agreement. The essential aspect of our founding principles with regard to foreign policy is largely unknown, really unknown. Please tell us about that. Yeah, I I agree with your assessment of it. I mean, uh, the founding principles of America with respect to foreign policy are totally opposite to what we live under today and have lived under for many, many decades. It was a foreign policy of non-interventionism. And that meant that the U.S. military would not go abroad in what John Quincy Adams called in search of monsters to destroy. <laughs> now, Adams Adams really did a great summary of, of America's founding foreign policy in his Fourth of July address in 1821. And it's entitled In Search of Monsters to Destroy. And he said, look, that we understand there's a lot of bad things that happen in the world. There's dictatorships, there's famines, there's wars, there's revolutions, all sorts of bad things, monstrous things. But the U.S. is not going to go abroad and save anybody. Uh, but interestingly enough, they established a, a policy of open immigration, which said that if you get out, if you want to come to a country, we won't, we won't send you back. So it was a very unusual system. But at the core of it was, not only do we not have a military that size to go in Europe and Asia and save people and get embroiled in these foreign conflicts, we have no interest in doing that. And what I'm arguing as a future of Freedom Foundation is now is the time for people to engage in introspection and start examining where we are as a country, where we want to go. Do we want to continue this road that we're on, which is getting ever more expensive and ever more dangerous, or do we want to restore our founding principle of non-interventionism? Yeah, it's amazing to me, the, the abuse of the word conservatism. That, I mean, what you're talking about, in my opinion, is actually conservatism, and I agree on this. I'm sure there are many other issues, me being a left-leaning liberal and you being a libertarian, that we disagree on, but this one we do agree on. And I'm kind of a First World War nut, as regular listeners know. Uh, in that war, it was sold to us as making the world safe for democracy. It was marketing. Did it make the world safe for democracy? Of course not. We've been in many other countries making the same argument. Now comes Ukraine. The U.S. at the very least supported a coup in 2014, and the government is hardly democratic. You have some thoughts on what actually precipitated this crisis. Do tell, please. Yeah, that when the when the Cold War ended in 1989, we have to remember that it wasn't the U.S. national security establishment, the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA that ended it. In fact, it was in their interest that it continue on forever. For sure. this, this is what was justifying not only their existence, but their ever-growing tax-funded largesse for themselves and their army of defense contractors. So... When the Soviet Union dismantles, they were essentially betraying the U.S. national security establishment by saying, we're not going to play this game anymore. Well, 
obviously for for the CIA and the Pentagon, that wasn't going to sit real well. And so they actually continued the Cold War. This is what a lot of people don't recognize. And they did that by keeping NATO in existence. Yes. Uh, NATO was um, a Cold War dinosaur. Its mission was to protect Western Europe from the Soviet Union. And that mission was moot in 1989. There is no more Soviet Union. So NATO should have gone out of existence. But that's not what they did. They first led the Soviets, the Russians, to believe that they wouldn't expand, that they would stick around. But they wouldn't expand. Uh-huh. And, of course, they did the exact opposite. They start um, gobbling up former Warsaw Pact countries and moving inexorably closer and closer to Russian borders with U.S. missiles, tanks, uh, bases, uh, with the ultimate aim of absorbing Ukraine, which would put U.S. forces and NATO forces right on Russia's borders. And you know, it didn't take a rocket scientist to understand that Russia would never count on this. Uh, any more than the U.S. would countenance Russian missiles in Cuba. We know where that ended up. Yeah, uh, That's just the way life is. But they were very ingenious in creating this crisis because now they're making it look like Russia's the aggressor and their acolytes in the mainstream press are saying, see, see, Russia's just as much an aggressor as the Soviet Union was. You know, the, the, the communists are back. And all this fear-mongering, of course, is what a national security state thrives off of. Absolutely amazing, but you know it's real. And I wonder, I, I've had questions myself about the, the promise not to expand NATO. Was that an unwritten agreement? Or I, I wonder how formal that was. Do you know? Yeah, it, it was a very informal thing. It was just done orally. And, mm-hmm. of course, uh, the, the Russians were dumb to rely on it. But <laughs> but my, my position is even if it had been in writing, it wouldn't make any difference. The U.S., National security state's not going to comply with its written agreements if it doesn't believe in them. Uh, it would have it would have continued expanding toward this uh, toward Russia's borders because it needs that. You know, it, it start after the end of the Cold War, they went into the Middle East and started provoking hornet's nests there mm-hmm. with uh, the Persian Gulf War, the sanctions against Iraq that were killing. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children. Mm-hmm. You got Madeleine Albright's infamous statement that the deaths of half a million Iraqi children are worth it and the sanctions. Well, then it produces terrorist attacks in 1993 on the World Trade Center, uh, the USS Cole, the, the embassies in East Africa, and then the 9-11 attacks. Mm-hmm. And we get this, oh, we're innocent, we're shocked. They just hate us for our freedom and value. Yeah, right. Well, they end up with this new official enemy called terrorism that is going to replace godless communism. And, and now they got the best of all worlds. They, they've, they've re-incited their old Cold War enemies, uh, China and, and Russia, and they still got their war on terrorism going. I mean, th- this, this does not end well with respect to the, our rights and liberties as Americans. This uh-huh. is what Americans need to be thinking about right now. Yes, our rights and liberties are... <sighs> You and I know under threat as never before, uh, and you know I've been around a little while, and uh, you know I, it, it's we're in a different place now, and this this is a time for introspection, as uh, your article uh, argues, and you know as you say, NATO was was created to defend Europe from communist incursion. There's no communism. I mean, it was, uh, you know, Stalinist expansionism, but he's long gone. Things have changed. Many, 
have suggested it might be time to rethink our alliance. Um, and I, I wonder, I can't figure out what motivates our government to blind themselves to how NATO is perceived in Russia and its role in the current crisis. You write, oh, yes, I know the U.S. officials are saying that Ukraine is a sovereign, independent country that has the right to join NATO. Well, what about this argument? Well, theoretically, that's right. I mean, Ukraine should have the right to, to, to join whatever organization it wants. But we're dealing with the real world. I mean, look, look at Cuba. Cuba is an independent country. It has the right to have Russian missiles there, nuclear missiles. Why not? It's a sovereign and independent country. But we know, as a practical matter, what the response of the U.S. was. Uh, well, we know what it was. We know that the response would be the same. So when they start moving NATO closer and closer and start absorbing Ukraine, they know what the response is going to be. Right. And, and again, you know, NATO should have gone out of business. And if NATO had gone out of business, we wouldn't have this crisis. That, that there would be just regular relations with the Warsaw Pact countries. Uh, there wouldn't be this institution absorbing them. And everything would have been normalized. The relations with Russia would have been normalized. Instead, what they've succeeded in doing is creating this, this, this air of hostility and animosity toward Russia. You know, calling it our enemy, our opponent, our rival. This is the talk of empires. Uh, there's absolutely no reason why there, there can't be peaceful and harmonious relationships with China, Russia, North Vietnam, North Korea. But the big impediment to this is the U.S. national security establishment. That's the, that's the flying ointment here. And I do find it interesting that here we are, many years after the uh, American war in Vietnam ended, we're doing business with them. Well, what a surprise. We could have been doing business with them all along. That war should have ended and could have ended in 1954. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting to me. When I was young, I was so proud that America would, of course, support people struggling to be free, nations wanting to overthrow colonial domination. Uh, that hasn't happened. And uh, to me, that's what I believed was a conservative principle. And you talk, I, as people know, I am not a fan of Donald Trump. Definitely not a fan of Donald Trump. However, when he was running in 2015, 2016, he was talking about doing away with NATO. And he got a lot of flack for that. And of course, once he became president, that went by the wayside. But I must say, I think he was right on that. And what, you know, what happens when people, and, and here you've had experience with this, when you say, we should have let NATO go. What's your reaction to, uh, uh, you know, how Donald Trump proposed that and, and the flack that he got? And still, what do you think? Well, first of all, let me tell you, Bert, that your point about North Vietnam is fantastic. I mean, it, you know, through the whole Cold War, the mindset was, oh, we could never have peaceful, harmonious relations with the Soviets and the Chinese. I mean, that's why they did regime change operations in Guatemala in 54 and right. Chile in right. the 70s, because those regimes were establishing peaceful relations. Well, as you point out, the fact that we have a nice relationship with North Vietnam means that that could have existed with the rest of the communist world. Uh, and that's essentially what John Kennedy was doing with his peace speech in June of 
1963 yes. at, at American University was yes. saying, okay, we have different ideologies, but we can get along. Now, your point about Trump, uh, it's a great point. I mean, Trump was rattling the national security establishment when he was running for office. No, no question about it. They, they, they definitely felt threatened because he was the first president who was challenging them since Kennedy. Every other president since Kennedy has just deferred to the CIA and the Pentagon and the CIA and the NSA. But then he gets into office right. and everything turns around. He surrounds himself with the generals. He, he lets the CIA keep their uh, Kennedy assassination record secret. Um, I mean, something happened there that caused him to shift gears. Uh, so he turned out to be a disaster. Yeah. He, he did. And and you're right. And I wish more people knew about that June 10th, 1963 speech of John Kennedy at uh, the American University. If you can, listeners, get it up, listen to it. It's uh, personally, not to be conspiratorial, but I think that's a reason he had to be killed, because he really took on the national security establishment. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Jacob Hornberger, who is head of the uh, uh, Future of Freedom Foundation, a libertarian group. And we're talking about an article he wrote uh, called A Time for Introspection. Yeah, can we do that? Look in a mirror. And what about this national security state? I do find it fascinating how so-called conservatives are basically all set with the national security state. How does that jive with real national, with real conservatism? Yeah, that, that's a great question. If I may, you sure. brought up about democracy. I want to address another point before we get to the national security state, since we have plenty of time, I think, oh, yeah. here. <laughs> this, I think this is a really important point on the Ukraine um, situation. That Notice that Congress is playing no role in determining whether Ukraine becomes a member of NATO or not. Now, now, why is that important? Well, we live in a representative democracy. Our, our founding fathers, the framers, established a system under the Constitution that said that American, the American people will never be sent into war without a declaration of war from Congress. Imagine. I mean, that's the system they set up. And yet, when, when, a, when, when Ukraine is absorbed into... NATO and all the other countries, the Warsaw Pact countries, it applies equally to them. The American people, namely young people ages 18 to 24 or so, they're now being pledged as collateral in the event that Ukraine is invaded by a foreign power. So if Russia invades Ukraine, the United States is automatically obligated to get embroiled in that war. Right. That's what NATO is all about. Well, where's the declaration of war requirement in that scenario? Where did where did Congress, the elected representatives of the American people, ever get involved in this process and say, now, wait a minute, we don't want our young people to, to have to pledge their lives in the defense of Ukraine or Moldova or any of these other countries. And and so they somebody has cleverly rigged this game up where it's really the Pentagon that's deciding yeah. who's going to be admitting into, admitted into, into uh, NATO. And then they've got you know, p young people registering for the draft, which means that these are potential cannon fodder hmm. uh, for, their, for their wars. So I think it's important that Americans understand that, that America, especially American parents, 
who have children that are in the age of 17 to 24 or something, mm-hmm. I, I would be outraged if I were a parent with a kid that age, including girls, because they're going to draft women if this thing goes south. And, I, and that's another reason why we need some introspection here is because these young people, their lives are being pledged without any representative input by members of Congress. Representative input. Boy, what a concept. You know, having, I mean, I really like democracy a lot. And the, I, I don't know when the last time going to war was a decision made uh, by Congress. And it was specifically and very clearly intended to be only the role of Congress because our founders were pretty bright people, I think. And they, they knew that they didn't want to have a king or a dictator just uh, leading us willy-nilly into war. And I, I do find it interesting. I mean, we're talking about young people, you know, old men declare war and young men and women do the dying on the, on the battlefield. You say if American blood is shed, the U.S. government will be responsible for any death toll that results from a Russia invasion of Ukraine. That's sort of inflammatory, but what's, tell us more about that. Well, because they're the ones that have incited this crisis. I mean, obviously, you know, the Russians are directly responsible. They're, they're the ones doing the invading. But when you manipulate uh, another power into taking a course of action like this, you've got to bear the responsibility for your manipulations. And there is no question that they are manipulating this. I mean, corollary of this was what Roosevelt did with the Japanese. Uh, the, uh, Roosevelt wanted U.S. entry into World War II. Yes. The American people were overwhelmingly opposed to it after the fiasco, as you pointed out, of World War One. Yes. And so Roosevelt had to figure out a way, how do I get into this war? Right. And so that's when he and when the Germans wouldn't take his bait, he goes into the yeah. Pacific and he puts an oil embargo on the Japanese. He freezes their bank accounts with no legal authority whatsoever. Yeah. He has humiliating demands on them, get out of China and so forth. Well, he he essentially maneuvered the Japanese into attacking the fleet at at Pearl Harbor because they were going not to conquer America, but to they wanted to get oil supplies out of the Dutch East Indies. And the way in order to do that, they had to knock out the American fleet. Well, this is all the U.S. that specifically Roosevelt that's maneuvering and posturing them into what is called firing the first shot. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, therefore, I believe Roosevelt bears responsibility for what happened at Pearl Harbor, in addition to the Japanese, of course. Right. Well, it's the same thing in Ukraine. By moving NATO closer and closer to Russian borders, NATO, or the U.S., the Pentagon, is really the one that is inciting this crisis. Yes. And now they're, they're playing the innocent on it. But if Russia invades, there is going to be no question, from a moral standpoint, that the U.S. has has caused this crisis, has brought it out, manipulated it, and therefore is going to be co-responsible for the death toll that is in that country. Mm, mm. And these are real people, you know, real young people. And, and you know, and, and you talk about FDR. I, I admire a lot of what he did. Eh, not everything. Um, but he did, of course, say the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But as so much history shows, the manipulation of fear works exceedingly well. What what do you see as the role of fear in determining how our tax dollars are spent, you know, vis-a-vis the uh, military-industrial-congressional complex? 
the role of fear. It's cent- it is central to it. It is everything. <laughs> I mean, they, they have to keep people afraid. And when, when Truman, this is a nice segue into your previous question about the national security state, because America starts out as a limited government republic, which is totally opposite to a national security state. Uh, it is it is a government where you, your military is very small, a, a relatively small army. It's designed to protect settlers moving out west from attacks by Native Americans or Indians. Uh, but it certainly doesn't have the, the ability to go into Europe and Asia and get involved in these foreign wars. And that's the way Americans wanted it. They didn't like what they called standing armies, which is big military intelligence establishments. There was no CIA. There was no NSA. There was no FBI even. Um, well, true in the Truman administration after World War II, he converts the federal government to what is called a national security state. Yes. Now, what's a national security state? Well, mm. to give you some examples, North Korea is a national security state. China, Russia, Egypt, Pakistan, and post-World War II U.S. It is it is a type of government with a massive military intelligence permanent establishment. It is the most powerful part of the government, the CIA, the Pentagon, and the NSA. And they wield dark side powers like assassination, coups, torture, kidnapping, regime change operations. So when, when that change takes place, everything changes for the United States. You know, at that point, the, 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 the governmental structure has changed. The, the powers of the federal government have changed. You don't have a limited government anymore. You, know, you can't have a limited government when a portion of your government has unlimited powers. Yeah. And I, I consider that the greatest mistake the American people ever made was converting the, the federal government to a national security state. That's the root of, of all these foreign policy crises. So fear is central to this. And Truman, and they told Truman this, that if, I, I forget the exact words, but some member of Congress told him, in order to achieve this, Harry, you've got to scare the hell out of the American people. <laughs> and, and the way they would do that is godless communism. And the, right. the Russians are coming, the Soviets are coming, the, the Cubans are coming, the Chinese are coming. It was all nonsense. I mean, I, the, the whole Cold War was just a great big racket. And that's what Kennedy saw yes. at, at, at the when he gave that speech at American University. He saw it's just a deadly, destructive racket. And it, got, it got us real close to nuclear annihilation in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was which is another crisis. It was caused by the national security establishment. Right. If they, they had not planned to invade Cuba, there would have been no reason for the Soviets to put missiles there. Absolutely. They, they were invaded. Guess what? They wanted to defend themselves. What a concept. And I, I, I will say this just came over the wire. See how old fashioned I am. Uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, today accused Senator uh, Josh Hawley and other conservatives of, quote, parroting Russian talking points amid the looming threat of conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, She, uh, uh, responding to Hawley's call for the Biden administration to abandon support for Ukraine's Ukraine's eventual admission to NATO, arguing it would not be in the U.S. interest to be bound by, uh, to defend the U.S., the Ukraine military. So here we go again. If you're not with us, you're with Putin or uh, uh, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein, but, but what, this, I guess it works. I guess it works. I don't know. And, uh, oh, it works great. It's like a variation on the, on the cold war theme. 
yeah. that you're a communist sympathizer right. if you don't support our animosity toward the Soviet Union and China and so forth. Yeah, and uh, uh, Henry A. Wallace, who could have been president if not for a coup at the Democratic Convention in 1944. Anyway, he wanted, he was not for the Cold War. He wanted to uh, do business with them. And guess what? We're doing business with them now. And yeah, I mean, where do we buy our stuff? It comes from Vietnam. It comes from China. You know, this is reality as well. And you think about why, you know, why 9-11 and other things happen. And I read that uh, from the Center for National Security, they they said that Abu uh, Zubaida, Abu Zubaida, a Guantanamo Bay prisoner who has uh, been held by the U.S. without charge for the past 20 years, and one month alone in August 2002, he was subjected to waterboarding 83 times. He also recalled forced sleep deprivation, being chained nude to the ceiling or trapped in a box, harsh interrogations, beatings, cold, hunger, and isolation. This may be swept under the rug by virtually all politicians, but people around the world are aware of it. So how how does a policy like this and these practices affect our real national security? It amazes me. Oh, it makes it worse. I mean, it it makes it unsafe for Americans to travel around the world. And it's really a denigration of the founding principles of America. I mean, when I was growing up, Bert, I mean, I was taught that that it's only these these horrible countries that engage in torture and assassination and so forth. And then later, as I grew up and I realized, my gosh, my own government's doing this sort of thing. Um, it's horrible. I mean, the CIA participated in something called Operation Condor in Latin America, which was a kidnapping, assassination, and torture ring. It's phenomenal. Uh, not to mention all their assassination plots against people that they considered communists. I mean, the communists here in America got away pretty good with the McCarthy hearings and losing their jobs. The communists overseas, <laughs> people who believe in God, they got killed and tortured and assassinated and executed and so forth. Well, of course. This is not what America is all about. No, and there, of course, was the Rosenbergs, too, but they were made an example of. Uh, anyway. And then, you know, here's, here's China. They're, they're big, they're growing, they make a lot of stuff. There's a whole bunch of them. Are they not a national security threat? What I mean, don't we have to militarize against China? Your thoughts? Of course not. I mean, it's the same principle that you can, you can just keep the government out of it. In other words, here, here is what I'm suggesting people should be engaged, thinking about as they engage in this introspection. A restoration of a limited government republic, which means no entangling alliances, no NATOs, no uh, these other things, CETO and so forth. And then no interventionism. Uh, open the, the borders to free trade and immigration. Free the American people to travel and trade wherever they want, to Cuba, North Korea, China. This is the way you establish peaceful and harmonious relations with the rest of the world. You know, I'm a libertarian. I, I would oppose communism with every fiber of my being. But you don't fight communism by becoming like communists and doing what the communists are doing, like torture and assassination and denial of due process and kangaroo tribunals. You, you fight communists with, with freedom, with sound ideas. And that means the ability to travel to Cuba, uh, Cuba, North Korea, China, and whatever, and leave the government out of this thing, dismantle the national security state. It is so destructive to our well-being 
not to mention the fact that the government's now $30 trillion in debt. Mm. I mean, that's incredible. Um, yeah. 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 I, I, you know, I, I have a mortgage, but you know, $30 trillion, that's, that's quite a, a bit of money. And uh, what about the concern about isolationism? People say, oh, isolationism, that's what you're talking about. It's dangerous. What about, why would you say to that? We well, say that that's a misunderstood term um, because right now what they're doing is isolating the American people uh, with all these controls, travel controls, movement controls, and so forth. But they've unleashed the, the Pentagon, the CIA, to go and stomp around the world. What I'm saying is should be the reverse. Leash in, rein in the national security establishment, dismantle them, restore a limited government republic type of governmental system, and then unleash the private sector. You know, free the American people to travel and trade and interact with the people of the world. That doesn't sound like isolationism to me. Sounds like you're just liberating the private sector to interact with the people of the world peacefully and harmoniously. I mean, there's a, what I'm suggesting here, Bert, is there is a way out of this morass in which we, are, where we find ourselves. And if Americans like this, this system where it's constant crises, constant chaos, then just keep on doing what you're doing. Keep supporting this way of life. But if you want out of there, there's a way out. And that's through this, this principle of non-interventionism and the restoration of a limited government republic. That gets us to where we want. Freedom, peace, prosperity, and harmony with the people of the world. Oh, you sound so dangerous. <laughs> it's, it's what, you know, it's what we are. It's what we're supposed to be. And I was so proud as a kid, you know, that pe people all over the world knew we had freedom here, that we weren't, you know, torturing people. They wanted, everybody wanted to be an American or come here. I don't think that's the case now. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Jacob Hornberger, who is uh, head of the uh, president of the uh, Future of Freedom Foundation, discussing his new article, A Time for Introspection. What, what I haven't gotten in a long time is how Republicans who call themselves conservatives can be such super hawks. Republican leaders in Washington are in an aggressive posture right now, as with the Democrats, pushing Biden to get tougher on Russia. But among those normally thought of as far right, this is curious to me, Matt Rossendale of Montana, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, Paul Gosar of Arizona, Thomas Massey of Kentucky, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. I disagree with these people on a whole bunch of things, a lot of things. But they all opposed the pervasive hawkishness. Rossendale said, quote, despite claims by war hawks on both sides of the aisle, it is not in our interest to spill American blood and treasure in Ukraine. I know you're not a Republican, but as you know, there is a substantial libertarian wing of the, of the Republican Party. What's your take on this? And I also got to ask about Rand Paul. I happened i mean for a long time i've said he's i agree with him more than anybody else on american foreign policy what's happening within the republican party on these issues well yeah i don't keep up with them to be honest with you and i don't, I don't know those names that you're citing so if they are saying those things and obviously they are you're, you're quoting them that's great i mean the, the thing is that conservatives used to be non-interventionists if you look at taft uh, i mean taft was a non-interventionist by and large and uh, 
And so there is this non-interventionist, limited government tradition within conservatism. Unfortunately, though, it's, it's pretty long gone. I mean, um, Republicans are as big as big of warmongers as Democrats are now. And in fact, I think they're competing as to who's the, the bigger warmonger, which is really ironic because Democrats used to portray themselves as being against all this stuff, like during the Vietnam War and stuff. But then again, it was Johnson, a Democrat, that got us really embroiled in that war, along with Nixon later on. So I don't, I don't put much faith in Democrats and Republicans. Now, are there a few that are that are trying to move America in a better direction? Well, yeah, but I think there are very few. But but I, I'm glad they're there. There's no doubt about that. Maybe they can influence people to join more people to join up with them. I'm going to play a brief clip from 1972 at the Democratic National Convention when George McGovern gave his acceptance speech at 3 a.m. in the morning. And that was certainly uh, no accident that it happened then and nobody would be watching it. But he had uh, comments to say about uh, coming home America. From military spending so wasteful that it weakens our nation, come home America. Your response to that, what about what McGovern was, was saying? He wasn't popular within the established uh, Democratic Party, and they took it out on him. Your thoughts about what McGovern was saying about coming home, America? I, I think he's absolutely right. And, and um, it took courage uh, you know, during that time of the Vietnam War to take that position uh, because you were accused of being a communist sympathizer, a lover of communism and so forth, that you didn't support U.S. interventionism. Martin Luther King's another example of this. When King uh, started speaking, now King, of course, was a civil rights leader, but at some point he crossed the line and started mm -hmm. speaking out against the Vietnam War, yes. and boy, he got, he got criticized viciously by other people in the civil rights movement. Well, King was saying, look, you know, there's a relationship here between yeah. what's going on in Vietnam and what's happening here with civil liberties. It's the same government that is, that is destroying people over there and destroying people over here. And uh, so you, you can't help but admire King for taking that stand. Uh, same thing with Muhammad Ali. I mean, I, I love right. the fact when, when Muhammad Ali said, you know, what have the Viet Cong ever done to me? Right. Uh, and and uh, I think he hit the nail on the head when he said that. Um, but it, unfortunately, Americans had to learn the hard way with 58,000 American men dead for nothing. I know. Oh, it's so tragic. People my age. I, uh, I, you know, I had a uh, college deferment at the time. And, you know, that's because my parents could afford it. And it was terrible, terrible injustice that was going on then. Um, and, you know, I, I suspect you and I could see quite clearly that there was simply no way not to have, I mean, no way to have, I should say, anything like a win in Vietnam or Afghanistan. Why do you think those countries were able to win against overwhelming military force? Because they have the, they have the incentive to win. It's their country. Right. I mean, you know, we know what the history of Afghanistan is. I mean, it's the graveyard of empires. Right. Those people are never going to allow a foreign power to to occupy their land. I mean, okay, the U.S. succeeded in 20 years uh, for 20 years of doing it, but the die was cast. They were never going to permit that. And they didn't care how many of them had to die to get rid of a foreign power. Nobody likes an occupier. 
except the occupier. And, you know, in, in Afghanistan is another good example of this uh, phenomenon, what the national security state does to manipulate people, that they, they actually manipulated the, the Russians into the, the Soviets to invading Afghanistan. And um, I think it was Brzezinski that said, oh, yeah, this is a great achievement. We've, we're giving them their Vietnam. Right. I mean, what, what, you know, that means they're, they're glorifying the fact that Russian, young Russian soldiers are getting killed and Afghans are getting killed. And, and somebody asked them, well, what about these, um, these Muslims, these radical extremist Muslims that you're supporting? <laughs> Don't you think that might be a threat? And Brzezinski says, oh, no, that's not a threat compared to what we're doing to, uh, to, the, to the Soviets. We're giving them a Vietnam here. Well. I just wonder what he what went through his mind after nine eleven. Oh, really? Um, and that was the blowback, you know. And and speaking of nine eleven, of course, that gifted us with a permanent war on terror. What was that about, really? It it, it worked real well uh, to to take that. I mean, America is united and freaked out for about a month afterwards, and then uh, boy, that unleashed a whole bunch of stuff. What about this permanent war on terror? I mean, the whole concept of terror, terrorism. Your thoughts? Oh, it's a scam. I mean, it, look, it was better than the war on communism because, you know, the, the, everybody thought the Cold War was going to last forever. And so, boy, the, the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA were in high cotton because for all this tax-funded largesse feeding at the public trough was going to go on through perpetuity. Then the Soviets double cross them, essentially, and declare an end to the Cold War. So that's when they start intervening in the Middle East and find a new enemy. And, and the new enemy is not terrorism, which means, you know, bad guys all over the world where there's bad guys everywhere throughout history. And there'll always be bad guys. So now they had this perpetual war, the war on terrorism. And, and ironically, they're two official enemies because, you know, they, they're China's still an official enemy. It's communist. Uh, Cuba, they still have an embargo against Cuba because it's communist. Ironically, these were Hitler's two official enemies, communism and terrorism, and especially after the Reichstag fire. Uh, those were his two big official enemies. So they need an official enemy. And as you indicated earlier, they need this fear. And so they're still killing people in the Middle East. They haven't gotten out of the Middle East. So all they need is another terrorist attack on American soil. Just like 9-11, in other words, blowback from what they're still doing in the Middle East, and we're going to see this all over again. Patriot Act 2, Patriot Act 3. Uh, I mean, you've got now you got the crisis with Russia over Ukraine. you got the trade war against China. you got the embargo against Cuba. you got the war on terrorism. This is their dream come true. All they need is one terrorist attack, and, man, we're going to really be suffering uh, destruction of our the, whatever liberties we have left here in this country. Hmm. And what about that? You say that with each new this is your word, with each new crisis, Americans lose more of their rights and liberties to the national security establishment. What, what's, what's the nexus, the connection between the national security establishment and losing our rights and liberties? Well, take, for example, the, the power of assassination. I mean, that is the ultimate power of any totalitarian dictatorial regime. Yeah. The, the power to just kill somebody. Because you don't like them or because you, you, you think they're a bad guy or because you, they happen to believe in communism or believe in socialism or whatever they believe in. That power of assassination is total. It's non-reviewable. The federal judiciary does not have the 
uh, well, it the federal judiciary says it doesn't have the power to interfere with the power of assassination. They, they call it a political question doctrine. Congress is not going to interfere with the CIA and the Pentagon's assassination power. Neither is the president. So they have the power. Now, in the early days of the war on terrorism, there were people saying, oh, this is great. They're, they're going to be assassinating foreigners, which they were doing even before 9-11 throughout the Cold War. But <laughs> all of a sudden, they're starting assassinating Americans. And that's what the Anwar al-Awlaki case was all about. And um, al was an American citizen. And his, his father tried to go into federal court and stop him from assassinating him. And the federal court said, no, we're not going to get involved in this. And so they assassinated this guy. Now, he happened to be in, in a foreign country, but that's irrelevant because in the so-called war on terrorism, it's a worldwide global war. It's the global war on terrorism, which includes the war here in the United States. So when, you, when you're living under a regime that's got the power to assassinate its own citizens, that is not a free country. There is no way it can be a free country. We've got the Patriot Act, which enables them essentially to search people without search warrants. Right. Uh, they're, they're monitoring people's phone calls and Internet visits and so forth under these mass surveillance schemes that the NSA engages in. And notice that when they're caught doing these things, nobody's ever indicted. Nobody's ever prosecuted. Mm. So the, there's no disincentive for them to, to do these kind of things. I mean, we, we live under a regime that, that has omnipotent powers, a power of torture. Uh, th that was what the Jose Padilla case was all about. They, they tortured this guy. He's an American citizen. And they chose a very un, uh, unsympathetic guy to, to do their test case with. It was difficult to sympathize with a guy like Padilla. But there were those of us who were saying, you got to look at the principle here. If they went on Padilla, that means they went on every American citizen. And they did win on Padilla in the courts. And uh, so they, they have the power to assassinate Americans, the power to torture Americans, indefinitely detain Americans. The Bill of Rights is essentially out the window when it mm. comes to the war on terrorism. Mm. They nullified the Bill of Rights with the war on terrorism. That's not a free society. What, what about people who might say, oh, you're being Pollyannish, that America has to be the essential big power in the world? Do you buy that? What do, what do you think about that? I, I say that, that, that at, at what cost? That that. People that are supporting this big power are also supporting little people because the, the more powerful your government, the littler, the littler the people become. They become frightened. They become weak. They become dependent. When you've got a weak government, you have a very powerful country because your citizenry are powerful. They have a sense of independence and can do and self-reliance and confidence. But when you live under a very all-powerful government like this, which is essentially the, the world's policeman, is the most powerful country in history, you have a very weak country. And what I mean by weak country is a weak citizenry. Uh, so I'd rather have a powerful country and a weak government hmm. than a powerful government and a weak country. Amen to that. My goodness. <laughs> Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is... Uh, uh, Jacob Hornberger, who's uh, president of the Future of Freedom Foundation, and we're discussing an article, uh, A Time for Introspection, and he is a libertarian. And, you know, we're talking about do we do business with Russia and China, we do business with, with Vietnam now. You know, those are private interests, and they have that 
nowadays, I guess they have that freedom to do that. But in a in a war situation, oh my goodness, you can't do business with them. I mean, Iran. You know, they're, they're a little bit, uh, shall we say, angry at the United States for a couple of things. Couldn't? <laughs> what could we do about about Iran? You leave them alone. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's at, see, here's another example of where, where they incite these crises. Yeah. I mean, you can't help but feel sorry for the Iranian people. They've been targeted with these brutal sanctions. And, I mean, why do we condemn terrorism, Bert? We condemn terrorism because terrorists target innocent civilians as a way to achieve a political goal. That's why terrorism is condemned. Uh-huh. That's exactly what sanctions do. That's what they've been doing against the Cuban people, the Iranian people. They target the citizenry with sanctions. They did it with Iraq as a way to achieve regime change in Iran. If you go back to the history of U.S.-Iran relations, uh-huh. you, can, you can see that it's the U.S. that's responsible for this. In 1953, the yeah. CIA ousts in a coup yes. their democratically elected Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Yes. He was Time Magazine's Man of the Year, right. highly respected in Iran. But because he was uh, had nationalized British oil interests, he was considered <laughs> sympathetic to communism. They asked him. They put the Shah of Iran in, who becomes this brutal dictator. They train his Sabak domestic force in the arts of assassination, torture, kidnapping. So in 1979, some 25 years later or so. Iranian people had enough of this dictatorship, and they oust the Shah, and they they unfortunately don't get to restore their democratic system that the CIA had installed, and so they they get a worse system probably than even the Shah, or at least it's bad. But that's why the the Iranian relations are so bad, is that the CIA has never forgiven the Iranian people for ousting their Shah that they had installed into power. They want regime change there. Um, it's time to just leave the Iranian people alone. The, the, the U.S. has caused enough damage for these people. Just leave them alone. Same thing with Cuba. Leave Cuba alone. But they can't do it. They're obsessed with Cuba and they're obsessed with Iran. Uh, interesting. Well, one, one of the quotes that people are probably tired of hearing from me is that one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. And in, in World, World War I, the belligerents, it was going on and on and on. They found that the force, force was not achieving its goals. So what they do, invest more of their national treasure and applied more force. <laughs> what, you know, if force isn't working, do more force. Why, why is this so hard to learn from? Yeah, that's a fascinating question because, you know, people were opposed to Wilson's folly. And that's what it was, folly in World War I, as you pointed out, the, the war to end all wars and the war to make the world safe for democracy. And they get Hitler within 20 years. Uh, precisely because of the Treaty of Versailles was so vicious and vindictive oh, and settled the, the war. And then Roosevelt maneuvers the U.S. into World War II. And what do we get out of World War II? We get all of Eastern Europe controlled by the communists. I mean, the Soviet Union is really the one that won the war. True. Uh, the, the, the British Empire, they lost their empire. The, but the, the Soviets get this, this, this huge tract of land. And we get the Cold War. We get North, the Korean War. We get the Vietnam War. Uh, I mean, if you just look yeah. at this in a continuum, it's horrendous. And why Americans don't learn from this and say, 
you know what? Maybe our founders were right with their limited government republic. It is <laughs> my mind. <laughs> Maybe our founders were right. Boy, you are a radical. My goodness gracious. What, 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 <laughs> what are we saying to the world if we fail to defend Ukraine? Uh, we're saying that the United States government has no legitimate role what's going on in the world. Bad things happen in the world. If Americans are outraged over this and they feel that, that Ukraine uh, should not be invaded, there's a simple solution to that. American citizens can travel to Ukraine and offer their services. Join the, the armed forces of Ukraine. Help them defend themselves. Leave the federal government out of it. Now, how many people would do that? <laughs> My hunch is none including all the members of the armed forces. They would not resign their commissions. The officers would say, I'm heading over to Ukraine, helping Ukraine. I mean, look, look at Vietnam. You know, we all felt that, hey, it's not a good thing to be taken over by a communist regime. But how many Americans were willing to go join the South Vietnamese army, which was a pretty corrupt regime oh, yeah. itself? Yeah. Nobody. Nobody would have done that voluntarily. Uh, and so that's what we tell the world. And you're better off without the U.S. government intervening in your lands. Uh, but if Americans want to go help out, more power to them. And, and as I've said for a long time, I really think in so many instances what we need is more democracy, not less. If we had – think of a foreign policy we'd have if, if, it were, if the decisions were made by the people. Wow. Why would that be different? Your, your essay ends with this. That's the big issue that Americans should be thinking about, reflecting, discussing, and debating right now, not just how to resolve the latest crisis in Ukraine, but more important, how to get our nation back on the road toward liberty, peace, prosperity, and harmony with the people of the world. End of your quote. What's your, are people starting to get that, do you think? Is there any movement... Uh, among you know Democrats, Republicans, uh, Libertarians, uh, picking this up and, and gaining some uh, traction on this, are people starting to get what you're suggesting? My hunch is yes, and I don't think you're going to see it reflected in the Democratic Party or the Republican Party in Congress. Over, I think what might be happening is that there's a lot of soul searching going on in regular people across the country. Mm. They know, they, they've got to know that something's wrong. Uh, I mean, when you've got, you know, debt of $30 trillion in inflation and they understand prices soaring at the gas pump, they've got the sense that something's wrong here and they're trying to figure it out. They just don't know what the solution is yet. I mean, that's what we're, you and I are talking about, what the solution is. But if, they're, if people are asking the question and they're doing some soul searching, They've got a real shot here because if they do grab onto the solution, you can see some very rapid change taking place here. I mean, you see, you read about these great awakenings in history at various times, which mm. sweep across the country like wildfire. And there's nothing the Pentagon can do to stop it. There's nothing the CIA can do to stop it. And it's it's what we call a paradigm shift. And on all you need is a critical mass of people which can be less than the majority that bring about this paradigm shift. And I think that might be going on, especially with this COVID thing. I mean, there's nothing like the prospect of death to cause people to do some inner searching. 
And I, I think that might be going on right now. Not, not the political parties as such, but among the American people. Fascinating discussion. And, uh, you know, people, the, the Democratic mainstream party, you know, I was an elected Democrat. They, they're not always pleased with my positions. I'll tell you that. But I, I have my positions and uh, I, very interesting and I think insightful conversation. If people want to read more of your work, tell us about how they can uh, keep track of what you write at the uh, Future of Freedom Foundation or a blog yeah, we, we have an FFF daily that we send out daily. We, we, we've been doing that for, oh gosh, more than 20 years now. And we strive to make that the best libertarian commentary page on the internet. And, and people don't agree with everything we do, just as you pointed out. Of course. But they will get a sense that this little foundation, the Future of Freedom Foundation, is committed to moving this country in a better, freer, more prosperous, peaceful, harmonious direction. And so... What we do is we, we try to raise people's vision to a higher level. Yes. What is it that we need to do to get out of this morass? What is the role of government in a free society? And we think if people are thinking at that higher level, then we've got a real shot of moving this country in a better, freer direction. Well, somehow I always remain optimistic. And, and you know, we talk about conservatism. To me, what you're talking about and what I'm talking about is genuine conservatism so the the website to go to is fff is it or what fff.org simple .org. enough simple you, enough you can subscribe to fff daily there it's free of charge and my, uh like i say we we do our best to make it the best daily libertarian commentary page on the internet yeah it's some good stuff I'd, i'll admit i don't always agree with it but hey that's okay thank you so much for being with us jacob hornberger uh it is indeed a time for introspection hopefully we can do it thank you Oh, thank you. This has been a real pleasure, and thank your listeners for listening in. Bert Cohen, and with your help, 
we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe. Don't miss a single one on the website, Apple Podcast, or Stitcher.